My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Are people make friends? Just trying to make some money? My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Today was day one of the don't fight the Fed sell-off. But it was also day two of the Santa Claus rally. The result, lots of cheap stocks participated in the Santa Claus rally, but the more expensive ones got scrooged. With the Dow ultimately dipping 30 points, S&P declining 0.87%. NASDAQ nosediving 0.247%. Get used to it. This may be the new pattern. Like many people my age, I cut my teeth on Wall Street Week. That was a show run by the late, great Lou Rukeyser. Every Friday night on PBS, he'd surround himself with some of the best minds in the business. There were so many good people who'd come on that show, it was practically overwhelmed with insights, even if you didn't like Lou's corny jokes. I took down copious notes every Friday, often found myself thinking, oh, man, I hope my dad could be a panelist. I never was. But how could you not want to be one? One of my favorite people on the show, a regular, was Marty Zweig, quiet titan who'd done more work about markets and histories than anyone I'd ever listened to. Still, he had simple precepts, including two that I considered getting tattooed on my arms when I got in the business. The left, don't fight the Fed. And the right, don't fight the tape. And that's why I've gotten, and I must get more negative here. Thank you, Marty Zweig. Look, I've been pretty bullish for a pretty, you know, long run, right? I still like a ton of stocks. But before J-Pal pivoted and decided that interest rates had to go higher, I liked tons of stocks, not a ton, but tons, including the ones with amazing growth rates that traded a high price to sales multiples. I, I loved them. I damn the earnings full speed. Ed. Back in the days, Wyeg spent a tremendous amount of time talking about the interplay between the Fed and liquidity and the stock market. You can spend a lot of time trying to understand this stuff, but if you're managing money, it's very simple. There are fewer stocks that go up when the Fed's tightening and many more that go up when the Fed's easy. That's kind of all you need to know. And while you don't want to fight the tape, especially since historically we tend to have a Santa Claus rally right about now, you also never want to fight the Fed. You simply can't let the stock market like the stock market as much as you did a month ago, even though it was higher before Powell pivoted. That's the nature of the market beast. So what, what doesn't work in a world where the Federal Reserve is tightening? Now, you think the big losers would be the cyclicals, right? The, the companies that need a strong economy, like the industrials. Raise rates, cool, right? Historically, though, the cyclicals do quite well in the early stages of rate hike. doesn't really slow things down. They're still doing great business. You have to be nimble, though. There will come a time, an eventual time, where a rate hike will happen that's too far where the tape turns against the industrials, too. But that can take years, and we're certainly not there yet. We haven't even started. What really gets hammered when the Fed starts tightening are the companies with no earnings, which is why I've been focused on them for you. I can go on and on about why these stocks just aren't worth as much in a world with raging inflation. But what matters here is that big pools of capital often act by rote. They get a playbook, and they stick to it. Now, I want you to imagine that you're in the office of a money manager, smart one. She's got a desk with drawers. Top one has, top one on the left, okay, how about that, has an envelope, and it says, do not open unless the Federal Reserve is about to raise rates. When the time comes to open the drawer and rip the envelope up, what pops out? A slip of paper. And on that paper it says, sell the most expensive stocks in the market. That's it. They're done. That's what they do. Yeah, it's like that. 
Now, I am sure some of you want to say, but how about this tech stock or that tech stock? Aren't they worth saving? Now, look, I've been thinking about this because I've been working on a special daily segment for the Investment Club where we'll go over changes where we're going to make from the charitable trust in a battle head to head, head to head on them. For months, we've been talking about cutting back on any single stock that's sold at a high price to sales mobile unless they happen to have big earnings. If they do, they can be kept, although we sold one today. It wasn't a tech, though, and it was just a, a remnant. Uh, not necessarily representative, but it was a high multiple on earnings. But let's say they don't have big earnings. Then you can't afford to fight the Fed on this at all. If you've got a tech stock that trades at 30 times sales, which is what I've been representing to you, a lot of them are, when the average stock sells for 20 times earnings, that tech stock's now in trouble, even if the underlying company is doing well. But when the Fed is easy, when it's got rates low, rates low, I like that, Rates low. Wall Street's happy to pay up for these high flying price to sale stocks. But once we start worrying about rate hikes, once the Fed's no longer your friend, then the market gets a lot tougher on the whole group before they could rally on strong numbers. Now they need spectacular numbers just to stay in place. And heaven help a great company like Adobe that sells for 40 times earnings if it misses the so-called whisper, the estimates that the Wall Street card shops are really looking for. We'll speak to Adobe later on the show, and you know I like that situation very much. I find the stock intriguing here after this decline. It's not one of those price-to-sales stories, price-to-earnings. But let's wait to hear from them directly, because it's a lot harder to buy this kind of software stock on weakness than it was a month ago. Next group of the tends to get blasted when the Fed starts citing housing. I happen to think that the home builders are terrific. Their business is the best it's been in years. However, I'm beginning to feel like I'm overstating my welcome. Lenar's number wasn't that great today, which is why we don't own any housing-related stocks for the Travel Trust. I always thought this moment would come. It's here. Uh, I have enough pain. Thank you very much. Finally, you also have to be careful with high multiple retail stocks. There will be whispers that Omicron strain will cut back mall shopping. You're already starting to hear it, right? Those sirens of selling were easy to ignore before the Fed started tightening. But now we're in a glass-half-empty market. All that said, while the universe of potential winners has gotten smaller, there's still tons of groups that work. Pretty much any financial can win, although some are better than others. Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, and the Chapel Trust. I like Wells on next year's expected rate hikes, but I don't like it on a potentially tougher regulatory environment. We just bought more Morgan Stanley for the trust in the last downturn. Because it has no real credit risk. It's a gigantic fee generation machine, strong leadership, consistent growth, no controversy, just money making. Remember, we don't want to be clever at this stage of the game. Simple's fine. Finally, I really like the consumer staples here, even if it's hard to find good ones. Maybe it doesn't matter. Hey, look, the other day I told you you can go out and buy Clorox. Clorox is not doing that well, but it didn't matter. It's going to go higher. Just that's what happens. Again, that's the envelope. Sell high-growth stocks. Sell expensive stocks. The other end, but we should say, buy Clorox. Uh, by the way, just so you know, um, we can also buy a bunch of other uh, stocks in the same cohort. I like Eli Lilly. Now, I pounded the table last week's club meeting on Eli Lilly. I think it's great. I am not backing away, even though the stock has risen tremendously, including four today and 25 yesterday. It doesn't make sense to sell it even at $279. It was up three bucks and change. I have no idea if Jay Powell will actually throw us into recessions. So many hedge fund managers seem to be demanding. If anything, I think it might be the opposite. He could whip inflation quickly, and we'll have to swap back into the stocks that we sold. But we'll be doing it at lower levels. The bottom line is that my opinion doesn't matter here. Wall Street has a playbook, and you'll be punished for trying to go against it, which is why you don't fight the Fed, and you don't fight the tape. Mark in Florida. Mark. 
Hi, Jim. I'm enjoying the Investing Club emails. Oh, thank you so much. I'm doing my best to get them out there. What's up? Uh, my question concerns the continuing drop in Macy's stock. Independent analysts rate it highly. Online sales seem to be good, but I guess the inflation worries are plaguing it. Should I get out now and cut my losses? No, or, or no, no. I actually think there's another level to buy Macy's. The stock is inexpensive on earnings. They're doing a lot of great things. Obviously, we've got a COVID problem. They're examining by using uh, Alex Partners whether they should do a dot-com spinoff. I think very, it's very important that you understand that I think Macy's is good. And if it goes to 20, I would be a buyer of more. That's the next stock if it does go down. And I bet you see my trust buying it, too, at that price. I said it once, and I'll say it again. Don't fight the Fed and don't fight the tape. Thank you, the late money's wife. Oh, man, money tonight. Trying to find the right way to approach the stock of Wayfair W. I'm dissecting the bull and the bear case. And it's been almost a year since the whole SPAC edifice collapsed. But the SPACs won't stop. I, I, I'm investigating why the deals are still surging in this market, and why they keep bringing them. And the stock of Adobe had one of its worst days on the averages today. Is the market overreacting? I'm going to get a clearer picture by speaking to the terrific CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. You can tell a lot about a market by the way it reacts to dueling analysts. Just look at Wayfair, simple W. This morning, the online furniture retailer caught two very contrasting pieces of research. And analysts at Needham initiated coverage on the stock with a solid buy rating, $280 price target. At the same time, Bank of America downgraded to sell and slashed their price target to $175. You know, I love these side-by-side, sell-side gunfights. Because they give you a chance to see the best arguments from the bulls and the bears so that you know what you own if you own these and whether you should buy or sell them. We already know the market's opinion, though. Take a look at, you know, obviously, market kind of has had enough, right? Wafer got obliterated today. Investors ignored the bullish report from Needham and focused on the bearish downgrade from Bank of America. Stock plunging more than 8%. Of course, it's in the NASDAQ, so it had the wind in its face to begin with. But now we have to say, is the market right? So let's take a closer look. First, we'll set the scene. Wayfair was a huge winner last year when everyone was stuck at home. Thanks to COVID, you had a wave of people buying new homes and furnishing new home offices. But it also wasn't really safe to shop in person. So this online furniture store got an enormous boost. Remember, they have an array of prices. Uh, A lot of people think that they're really in the lower end, but they have an array. They can do a lot of different things for you. Wayfair had always been a company with rapid revenue growth and no earnings. But thanks to the pandemic, they were finally able to turn a profit last year. They were a big COVID winner. However, coming into 2021, we saw a big rotation out of the COVID winners and into the great reopening place. Now, that didn't help. That Wayfair was suddenly up against difficult comparisons, right? You can imagine they were facing a period where they were doing so well. And lately, it's only gotten more difficult. We've seen a wholesale rotation out of the turbocharged growth stocks like this one, as it's become clear that the Federal Reserve will be raising interest rates sooner than expected. And as I said at the top of the show, that 
tends to obliterate this kind of stock. Right when the market started really worrying about persistent inflation causing the Fed to hit the brakes in early November, Wayfair reported what was rather regarded as a disappointing quarter. Even though their earnings came in better than expected, their sales were weaker. Plus, because of the difficult year-over-year comparisons, the company's revenue was actually down nearly 19% versus the same quarter in 2020. The stock got clobbered in response. That's a big decline, COVID or no COVID. While Wayfair managed to rebound back to an intraday high of 298 on Black Friday, that was right before the hideous market-wide sell-off, where growth stocks like this one were right at the center of the blast radius. And that's how Wayfair ended up at 189 bucks. You know, these, these are... Look, I mean, you're talking about just a couple of months ago, right? Here to there, 189 bucks and change. It's just been a hideous decline. A lot of people taking a lot of pain in this stock. And that's the context for the shootout. We've had a number of people try to call the bottom in Wayfair, but they've always been too early. So it was a bold move when Anna Andreeva from Needham initiated coverage of the stock with a buy rating and a $208 price target this morning, basically saying it's going to go back to where it was. What's the thesis? All right, for a buy recommendation, Needham's pretty clear-eyed about Wayfair's lackluster near-term prospects. They say straight out that Wall Street's expectations for 2022 are too high, and their sales forecast is 9% below the analyst consensus. Wow. Well, I recommend the stock then. Because as Needham sees it, Wayfair's in possession of an underappreciated asset. It's not a sum of the parts deal, but... I didn't know this. They've got a gigantic fulfillment business. It's known as Castlegate, basically a network of big warehouses that are also distribution centers. They've spent a fortune building out this logistics capacity, and they now have 18.5 million square feet of space. Going forward, Needham thinks that the investment spending in Castlegate should mostly be behind them. And this huge logistics network gives the company a major competitive advantage because it means they can get their products to you faster than the competition. I like that. I think that makes a ton of sense. Just as important, Eden points out that while Wayfair's up against difficult comparisons right now, the tough period ends in a quarter or two, at which point the company can go back to delivering double-digit growth. Thanks to the Castlegate logistics business, they also expect uh, the margins to start climbing again in 2023. Put it all together, and Needham believes the stock is a steal here now that it's trading at just 1.6 times next year's sales estimates. Remember, price to earnings, price to sales. We don't like price to sales, but that's a darn low price to sales. What about the bear case from the Bank of America? The one one that carried the day and crushed the stock? Much less courageous call, but in the investment business, it rarely pays to be hero. Bank of America points out that not only is Wafer up against tough compares that will continue through the first quarter, they're also seeing ugly data right now. More importantly, they don't feel confident about Wayfair's business as we head into 2022. Once consumers feel safe spending money on travel and entertainment again, Bank of America expects them to spend less on stuff like furniture. If we ever beat this pandemic, you also got to expect less demand for home office furniture. While the analysts still believe in Wayfair's long-term story, they're adamant that this is the wrong time to own a digital furniture retailer. We're now in an environment of high inflation and soon to be rising interest rates, which is not great for the furniture business, especially not great for a furniture business that trades on the money it could theoretically make many years down the road. Eh, not buying it. As for the valuation, Bank of America thinks Wayfair deserves to trade at 1.2 times their 2023 sales estimates, which is how they arrive at their $175 price target down not too much from where the stock is currently trading. So where do I come in? Honestly, I think they're both wrong. Needham and Bank of America are still judging Wayfair like we're in a stock market where the Fed is your friend. That's no longer the case. I feel like the bulls at Needham jumped the gun here. If they really think the first quarter will be bad, well, they should have waited. Wait another three months for initial coverage at the first. Uh, uh, first. Uh, that, that made no sense to me. 
It's, I know it's hard to sit in your hands, but you had to. And I think the bears at Bank of America are wrong, too. And that's because they're still trying to value Wayfair on a price-to-sales basis. Sorry, but that's not how this market works anymore. Get with the beat. Analysts have gotten way too used to judging a previously unprofitable Wayfair on a price-to-sales basis. But now we're entering an age of Fed tightening where Wall Street has no patience with that kind of thinking. you got to judge stocks based on earnings, which Wayfair now has. And on a price-to-earnings basis, the stock is far from cheap. If you use the 2023 earnings estimates because 2023 becomes next year in a few weeks, how do furniture retailers normally trade? Well, how about this? How about the best? RH, the old restoration hardware. Well, that's at 19 times 2023 estimates. And that's like a beauty to behold company. Hey, how about one that we just think the world of? How about Williams-Sonoma? That sells for 11 times those numbers. Remember, those are earnings. Those are both high-quality companies with much more consistency than Wayfair. Although they also have a much less growth at the moment. I like them both. I like them far more than I like Wayfair. I am really both. I mean, it's funny because... Uh, you're talking about Gary Friedman, who's an amazing manager at RH, and Laura Albert at Williams-Sonoma. They're both fantastic. They, the Wayfair could use either one of them, but they would never go. Still, by comparison, Wayfair sells for 42 times the 2023 earnings estimates. Now, given the faster growth, Wayfair deserves, I guess you could say, a higher multiple, but not that much higher in this age of rising interest rates. I wouldn't pay more than 25 to 30 times earnings for this, which means this stock might be enticing between 112 and 135. Down huge from here. And that makes sense. The bottom line, when a stock gets hit with a downgrade and drops 8.5%, you have to expect that there's more pain ahead, especially with a stock like Wafer, where the bearish analysts don't seem nearly bearish enough, given that the market's become a lot less friendly to growth stories. There are a lot of cheap stocks out there, including a bunch that are owned by my travel trust. I would check them out first before I would ever pull the trigger on Wayfair. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, 2021 was the year of the SPAC attack. Kramer runs a comb through the year's best deals and eyes the opportunities that lay ahead. Next. It's been nearly 10 months since the whole SPAC edifice collapsed in its own weight. Yeah, lately we've seen a surge in the new number of SPACs. It's, so it's got me curious. How the heck are these? Are there still so many special purpose acquisition companies doing the same darn thing that hasn't worked in ages? And other than P.T. Barnum's genuine wisdom that there is a sucker born every minute, why are so many still being conned on these? On average, these SPAC deals have been horrible for regular shareholders. Horrible. When a privately held company circumvents the IPO process by merging with a publicly traded SPAC, basically a big pile of money until it acquires something, the end result is usually a sickening decline in the stock. Just look, late last week, we saw another high-profile SPAC lash when BuzzFeed merged with one of these things. The stock initially spiked to $14 before plunging to 5 and changed last Thursday. Now it's back to 6 I'm telling you, that's awful. And the deals don't stop. Even as traditional IPO market is winding down, we just had 19 new SPAC offerings that collectively raised $3.7 billion. So what, what's going on here? I mean, you think these SPACs are terrible investments, right? Not so fast. As SEC Chairman Gary Gensler pointed out in a biting video last week, SPAC investors basically make their money by screwing over both home gamers and the companies they merge with. Those are my words, not his. What do I mean by that? 
All right, let's look at the BuzzFeed example. After briefly spiking from 9 and change to 14, BuzzFeed stock collapsed to the mid-single digits. Why did it collapse? Because the post-spec deal, BuzzFeed got hit with redemptions. See, there's something you may not know about these special purpose acquisition vehicles. When a SPAC decides to do a merger, the SPAC investors get a choice. They can either keep holding shares of the combined company or they can redeem their shares for a prorated portion of the money that the SPAC's been holding on in a trust account, usually about 10 bucks. Uh, which is the price where these SPACs come public when they raise their initial pile of cash. Get your money back. Now, BuzzFeed merged with a SPAC called 895th Avenue Partners. And for months going into the closing, that stock was trading at nine and change. As long as the stock's below 10 bucks, it's a no-brainer for the SPAC investors to redeem their shares rather than stick around. In the case of BuzzFeed, roughly 94% of the pre-merger SPAC shareholders voted to cash out, got their money back which was an embarrassing vote of no confidence from the investor base. Just as important, it made the deal pretty pointless for BuzzFeed. They thought they'd been raising more than $250 million by merging with the SPAC. Instead, they ended up with roughly $16 million. Of course, BuzzFeed's currently in the middle of a labor dispute. The unionized workers at BuzzFeed's news stage to walk out earlier this month. But from a stock market perspective, I think it's more important that 94% of the SPAC shareholders staged a walkout last week. So you can see why people keep investing in new SPACs. The risk for early investors is actually very, very low. Because if they announce a deal and the stock gets hit, they just can get their money back. When you zoom out, it's remarkable how badly some of these post-deal SPAC stocks have done. But if the market reacts poorly to the news of a merger, the SPAC's early shareholders can just back out. But the investors who come in later still experience the carnage, and there's a lot of it. Now, CNBC's been at the forefront of exposing stuff. We've, got, we've been tracking the performance of the largest post-spec deal stocks in a custom index. And that index is now down 40% year-to-date. That's ridiculous. We examined the performance of a group of larger groups of, uh, group of, a larger group of no, 193 of these stocks. The numbers, they're horrible. As of yesterday's close, 69% of the post-spec deal stocks Uh, that we examine are below their benchmark price of $10. Nearly 20% of them are now below $5. And even when you look at the winners, it's not like they're winning very much. Of the 58 names that aren't underwater, 25 are below 12. Only 23 of them are above 15, and that's just 12% of the 193 names we looked at. Even these are down an average of 43% from their highs. In short, buying these stocks in the open market is almost always a mugs game. But don't take it from me. Listen to SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. Suppose a group of strangers came up to you and said, I have a company that doesn't do much of anything, but sometime in the next two years, we'll merge with another company. I don't know what that company is yet. Would you invest in the strangers company? What if I told you that if the strangers complete a merger, they get to pocket 20% of your investment. That's essentially what a special purpose acquisition company, a SPAC, does. That's, that is the, um, let's see, the clearest, most rigorous explanation of what's going on here. But then the SPACs give sweetheart deals to large institutions. Another thing I don't like, letting them in at what's usually a better price via what's known as a private investment in public equity or pipe transaction. Throw in the fact that once a SPAC merger gets announced, they promote the heck out of the thing with all sorts of practices and projections that would be illegal if the company in question was coming public through the traditional IPO way. That's why Gensler wants to crack down on pretty much every stage of the SPAC process. And he is right. Now, the SEC took its first actions against SPACs in March, and after that, the pace of these deals kind of slowed to a crawl for the next six months. 
good. But lately, they've been accelerating again. It's like they've forgot, people have forgotten what uh, Gensler said. We're now seeing roughly 20 SPAC fundraisers per week. That's insane. Again, it's because, uh, it's because while buying a SPAC stock after a deal gets announced is a terrible bet, getting in on a SPAC IPO actually makes sense financially because of that $10 thing I talked about. As long as you come in early when the SPAC is still just a pile of money, you've got a no-lose scenario because you can always decide to cash out at $10 whenever a deal gets announced. More importantly, when money managers participate in the SPAC IPO, they don't just get a share of the SPAC. They're actually buying a unit, which includes one share and a fraction of a warrant. These fractions of warrants typically aren't worth much, less than a dollar in most cases. But when you throw in the ability to redeem your shares for 10 bucks each, they're basically looking at a guaranteed win. Say the price of the warrant's worth 50 cents, and you pay $10 for the unit, because $10 is standard in these offerings. Well, that's a 5% gain if the SPAC flames out. Because there's less demand, the SPAC's raising money now have been making the terms even more enticing. Used to get only a third or a quarter of a warrant per share. Now they're typically giving you half a warrant or more. The old standard was that the SPACs would give you, get you two years. You would give, they would get two years to find a takeover target. Or they give you your money back. Now it's 18 months. And rather than give you $10 back if you decide to redeem your shares, they're giving you $10.10 or $10.20. That's 1% or 2% interest. Low bond rates is not bad. Throw in the warrants, and this is basically a very lucrative money lending operation. The problem is most home gamers can't take full advantage of these SPAC IPOs, and the companies that decide to merge with SPACs are getting a raw deal, too. The bottom line, the SPAC deals keep coming because they're a great way for institutional money managers to get a guaranteed return. But everybody else in the process gets the short end of the stick. Sooner or later, privately held companies will figure this out and stop agreeing to participate. But until then, I recommend you give this group a wide berth or no berth at all. Daniel in New York. Daniel. Booyah, Jim. This is Daniel from Long Island. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. So I have a stock that I own that's nearly been cut in half since they reported earnings back in November. I want to know if you think I should buy more and cost average down, sell and realize loss, or just keep holding. The stock is DraftKings. It's just been approved in several states recently. So how do you think that might affect all of the gambling stocks? Well, the stock has been very difficult to own. I said it would be. I've been waiting for uh, a, a kind of a shakeout to occur, which I think in the end, DraftKings will be on the top of the heap. But the shakeout has not occurred yet. So the stock is in bleed mode. And I now think it's really just faced with some tax law selling. We'll look at it at the beginning of the year. Even though they just got states, Ohio just got state after state comes in. There will be a good business, but you need a shakeout. How about Michael in North Carolina? Michael. Hey, a big, big, a big North Carolina booyah to you, Jim. I like that. I like that North Carolina booyah. What's up? My stock is lucid. I bought it in the. Well, let's say Lucid. I guess the question involves Lucid. Um, well, we were out there visiting Peter Rawlinson, and I've got to tell you, I think the stock is uh, it's the it's one of the better ones. Uh, it's probably one that's definitely going to, you know, I think it's one that's going to make it. And a lot of people want these stocks and it is a great ride. But remember, it is very speculative. The SPAC space. Most home gamers can't take full advantage of it anyway. I'm recommending extreme caution. Much more man money ahead, including my Susan with Adobe. The stock tumbled today, but could it be prime time to buy? Don't miss my interview with the CEO. Then I'm telling you why I'm praising Pal. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's just of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer.
Earlier this morning, the pre-market action looked a lot like yesterday. All sorts of beaten down stocks making a comeback. Then around 8 a.m., the Nasdaq rolled over. What changed? Adobe. All right. This morning, the digital media and marketing colossus reported. And while the actual results were in line with Wall Street's expectations, I thought a little bit better, uh, for both the current quarter and next year, there were people who felt that the forecast was weaker than anticipated. And that's why the stock plunged 10%, sent shockwaves across the whole cloud cohort. I've seen this move before. It's usually wrong. Of course, Adobe's been a huge long-term winner, and the stock slowed roughly 13% for the year. So what do we make of this pullback in an environment that's suddenly become a lot tougher for the whole group? Let's check in with Shantanu New Ryan. He's the chairman and CEO of Adobe. Get a better read in the court. And what comes next? Mr. New Ryan, welcome back to Mad Money. It's great to be back on your show, Jim. All right. Well, first, I want to get right into something that I think people forget. I'm looking at a chart. It's outstanding uh, fiscal year 2021 results, and it's showing me what your original targets were versus the actual. Uh, there are a couple of them. For instance, digital media, 1.75 billion, turned out to be 1.98 billion. Digital media, 19% growth, turned out to be 25% year over year, 19, 24%, 22, 27 for all the different uh, uh, verticals. Uh, do people understand that sometimes you beat your targets? Well, Jim, as you point out, it was actually uh, a phenomenal year. Uh, every single financial measure of, for 2021 was outstanding. And I think what was particularly satisfying for us was it was our first $15 billion year. Uh, we screened through $15 billion. And in Q4 particularly, we had our first billion-dollar digital experience quarter. We had our first $3 billion digital media quarter. We had $2 billion of cash flow. Uh, you know, we still... Uh, produce a lot of profitability. But I think as it related to our 2022 targets, the underlying business is still as healthy as it's been. I guess when you're a $15 billion company, the one thing that perhaps people didn't quite understand was how foreign exchange uh, is moving against us. But the underlying business is still extremely strong. Yeah, we had this exact thing with Salesforce and with Oracle. Both of them said it. Neither was believed. Three days later, they were all believed. So I don't want our people to be spooked because to me, this was your best your best quarter, a great year. But more importantly, there were things that happened this year that you didn't have before. And unfortunately, it wasn't really until the end of the, of the Q&A. I think that you can own the actual day to day metaverse when it comes to what a customer wants and for what your thousands of customers to get. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I've seen the metaverse uh, as presented to me by, by Jensen Wong. And all I wanted to do is say, look, I can advertise here. I want to advertise there. I want to do this. But I realized I can't do it without Adobe. There's no one else who can do it. Am I correct? Well, first, as you know, Jensen's a great friend and what he's done at NVIDIA is truly amazing. Uh, but uh, to your question, uh, Jim, really, when we think about what the metaverse really means, it's all about being able to engage with a computer and do things in the virtual world, what you could do in the physical world. And so I think the biggest issue associated with that is how do you create this content for the virtual world? Because if you want to travel, if you want to study medicine, if you want to play games, or, or if you want to just experience something, it's all about customer engagement, and it's all about digital creation. And as you point out, that's something that Adobe is uniquely positioned to do. I think the other aspect of the metaverse that's particularly relevant to Adobe that we will also have a huge role in is how these virtual goods now actually have value. And so when you think about NFTs, or if you think about the value associated with these virtual uh, goods, 
uh, Adobe is again playing a very significant role in not only your ability to create it, your ability to post it in the metaverse, but again, your ability to monetize it. And so I think this creator economy, Adobe is going to be a major player in the creator economy. Yep, I, I, you have always democratized. I now think that if, I, if there were a digital mall, and it was a, you know, in the, in the metaverse. And I wanted very much to be able to have my daughter open that dress shop that she's always wanted. The only way she could do it would be with Adobe tools. And the only way she could have people cash out with the, with the digital currency of their choice would be with Adobe. I think when people sell the stock, they seem to think that, that somebody else has come in and taken the place of Adobe. It, it, if anything, you've gotten stronger versus your opponents. Well, one of the cool products that we announced uh, earlier this week, Jim, was a product called Creative Cloud Express. And you and I have always spoken about how our vision is really for anybody who has that story to tell. Your daughter, whether right. she's studying history, whether she's creating a de- dress store, uh, you know, how do you enable them to tell that story? And Creative Cloud Express is really a quantum leap ahead of anything in terms of being ease of use and accessibility and making the web a real medium in order to be able to do that. And so, you know, our artificial intelligence and machine learning framework really allows us to capture intent and understand how a content-first authoring paradigm, namely because we're all terrified of the blank screen. Right. And if Adobe can help us, where you say, I would like to create this dress store, I would like pictures, I'd like to make sure that I can do commerce associated with it, I think making that happen in a few clicks, that's, you know, really Adobe's domain. And we're going to do some magical work in that area. Now, I want to be sure people may not know this. I've known you for a long time. If you felt there was something that was weak, you have never hesitated to say uh, this part I'm not happy with. That has been your way. Now, someone, some analysts are being disabled. Listen, you should ask them. They felt the experience cloud subscription growth disappointed. I said, I'll ask him because I know that if he felt it disappointed, he would say it. He's never hidden anything. Well, actually, the experience cloud growth, uh, Jim, was one of the highlights of the quarter. <laughs> we uh, delivered this experience platform. Uh, we've talked about how uh, Anil Chakravarti, who has just been promoted to president of that digital experience business, talked about, you know, uh, we are absolutely the leader in creating this real-time customer data platform that allows you to do personalization at scale. And so I think, you know, part of what, uh, and maybe we didn't do as good a job, Jim, and that is when you look at it year over year, there are a couple of things that are going into the equation. The first is we had a 53-week uh, year. We have a 52-week year. So when you do the quarterly compares, you have to remember it's 14 weeks versus 13 weeks. As I mentioned earlier, there's a little bit of foreign exchange, and maybe we could have explained that, as well as uh, last but not right. least, the lapping of an acquisition. When you look at the underlying trends of the business, digital, it's going to change everything that we know uh, about how we live today, whether it's work, whether it's entertainment, whether it's play. And all three of our businesses are actually at the sweet spot of what's going to happen in this particular space. So digital experience had a great quarter. We're continuing to show really positive growth. In fact, the statistics that he shared was that we grew our year-over-year net bookings in that business greater than 40%, Jim. I know. Well, to me, what matters is until you tell me that people aren't content creators, until you tell me that that content no longer powers the creator economy and that content doesn't fuel the global economy, then I'm going to believe in Adobe. 
Because those are fundamental precepts that you and I have talked about forever, and they have fueled the growth of Adobe and the economy. They're one and the same, and you're just arm in arm with what's happening in the world. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Jim. And, you know, uh, I think we have uh, the most engaged, motivated 25,000 employees. They love the vision of the company. They love the purpose of what we stand for. And our job is to just continue to innovate. And that's what we're going to focus on. Well, you do a great job. I always tell people, if you want to take your cue from the stock, uh, you'd be wrong because we started recommending the stock at 58 and we're not leaving it yet. It's just, it's still inexpensive versus what you're doing. I want to thank Shantanu Nurayan. He's the Adobe chairman and president and CEO. Shantanu, I always just so great for you to come on because it renews my faith in what all of us are trying to be, which is creative. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jim, and happy holidays. Oh, same to you. We'll all tell stories together, and they're going to be on Adobe. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, a storm is coming. So give us a call. Kramer's got the answers to all your burning questions. The lightning round is next. It is time. It's time for the lightning. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy, time for the lightning round. Let's start with Michael in Florida. Michael. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Michael. Booyah. So I broke out the shopping list. In the past two days, I've been looking at ticker VFRR Fiverr. I want to see if I'm getting into a good entry no, point no, or am I holding something. Remember the criteria. We need to have companies that are profitable that sell at a price-to-earnings to ratio, not a price-to-sales ratio. They have to be profitable. Let's go to Maurice in Virginia. Maurice. Booyah, Jim. How you doing? I am doing well. How about you? I'm doing well, doing well. Um, with the Brown Brothers Harriman acquisition completing at the end of the year, buybacks being halted until the second quarter of 2022, AUC up 18% and AUM up 23% in the third quarter. What is your 22 outlook for State Street Corporation? Oh, I like State Street very much, but I got to tell you, let me do you even better. I think Morgan Stanley, the Travel Trust, has been buying Morgan Stanley. We've been sending some great bulletins out. I think it's cheaper, better, with better growth, and really fabulous management. Let's go to Mike in Texas. Mike, Mike, Mike. Hey, Jim, how's it going? I'm it's going well. How about you? <laughs> Good, good. Thank you. I want to see what uh, what's going on and what's your thought on uh, Virgin Galactic Holdings. Right. Now, Virgin Galactic Holdings is a classic example of the stock that you want to buy when the Fed is easing or got rates low. When the Fed is tightening, there really is no kind of value that you're going to get, You'll at least alone $3.6 billion. Tom in Alabama, Tom. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. My question about AT&T. Uh, well, you know what? Today it got uh, upgraded. Uh, it got by Simon Flannery. I got to tell you, I said today at 22 bucks, the hate is over. I'm no longer putting the hate on ATT. Enough is enough. It's gotten low enough. And I said it'll squawk on the street when the stock was up 10 cents. And I'm going to stick by that position, even though the stock was up very big today. Because enough is enough. No matter how much I don't like those guys, and I don't, at these price, enough. Let's go to Mike in New York. Mike. 
Booyah, Kramer. Whoa, yes. Hey, thank you for doing something that actually matters for the public. (laughs) You you, matter. Thank you. Seriously. Hey, okay, so hey, listen, I know there are larger companies in this space that you like, but I was looking for a small cap growth niche company, and I found one I think that's great, and it is Israeli Optical Inspection Equipment Company, did a convertible slightly higher than it's trading right now, company growing at over 60%, earnings per share over 150%, PE is only around 30 peg ratio less than one. What do you think of Camtech? C-A-M-T. I like Camtech. I like Camtech. I like the space. I like Camtech. I think you've got a good one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, leave the saber rattling to Rasputin. Kramer's got Fed sense, and he shares it with you next. So many people have the Fed all wrong. Today I kept hearing that Jay Powell should have been much tougher. That his softy approach will open the door to hyperinflation. I'm surprised they didn't break out the Weimar Germany analogies when you couldn't buy bread without a whistleblower full of Deutschmarks. But anyone who trots out hyperinflation is frankly just being ridiculous. You have no rigor here. We know we had high growth and terrific unemployment with low inflation in 2019. Then we got COVID. 800,000 people died. And millions upon millions have resigned from their jobs, with many disappearing from the workforce entirely. We don't know where they are. At the same time, COVID-induced shutdowns have created supply chain bottlenecks all over the place. Powell does not want to extrapolate from that. When he says that he's not basing his views on the Omicron strain, that's only half right. Omicron will be the next COVID variant that sweeps the country. And as it does, we'll have to have more supply chain. Uh, we're going to have more supply chain problems. Just face it, that's what happened. But it's already looking like Omicron is less dangerous and less deadly than the Delta variant and could even crowd out the more lethal strain. Now, Powell is very historical in his approach. I don't talk to him, but I'm sure he knows that from an economic perspective, this pandemic has a lot in common with the Spanish flu that swept the world uh, right, right after World War I. Although from a human perspective, the Spanish flu was much worse. But we know it eventually ran its course even without a vaccine. And we know that after we got over it, we had the Roaring Twenties. At the same time, Powell has to be aware that Omicron will cause disruption in the workplace and higher prices. So he's got to walk this tightrope. He can't afford to be too harsh. What if Omicron wrecks the economy? But he also can't afford to be too gentle. What happens if the pandemic runs its course and we get a Roaring Twenties situation? That's why I think Powell chose to start tapping the brakes on the economy rather than slamming the brakes like so many of his critics want. The people trashing him for being late in raising interest rates assume he should have no responsibility to the unemployed. Legally, the Fed has a dual mandate. The jobs ensure both price stability and strong employment. For decades, the Fed's only taken one of those mandates a lot less a lot serious, really. Uh, Pal's not like that. He's a bigger thinker. He wanted to help people, especially disadvantaged minorities. He wants them to get jobs. And he has done that. He succeeded. So now it is time to tighten. But not too much. Because Omicron could still do real damage to the economy. 
Now, many people ask me why I praise J-Pal so much, as if it's some sort of sin. Some say it's because I want a higher stock market, and he's given us that one. Oh, some truth to that. I mean, God forbid anyone makes money owning stocks. Others say I praise Powell because I know him personally, which is flatly untrue. We've never socialized. For the most part, though, I like Powell because he's measured. He's a compromiser. He's data-driven. He's not an ideologue. I was a government or political science major in college. Back then, we always talked about how our country was gifted because it was not ideological. And that's been one of the great sources of strength of our nation. Even Richard Nixon, president when I was in college, was not an ideologue. Nixon made his career pushing anti-communism, yet he became the first president to visit the People's Republic of China. He compromised with the Democrats on the Clean Air Act, Water Act, too. Of course, that was a very different time when we didn't have coherent political parties. Now everything is ideological, both in Washington and on Wall Street. People come on and talk extremes because they, they got an agenda to push. Powell's not taking the bait. He's not doing that. He doesn't want to throw people out of work with his actions, but he also doesn't want to let inflation spread unchecked. So he's searching for middle ground. He's measured. To my mind, he's exactly what we need and what we want. I like to say this always is a bull market summer, and I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 